This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Source Labs. The award-winning Source Labs Continuous Testing Cloud delivers a 360-degree view of a customer's application experience, ensuring that web and mobile applications look, function, and perform exactly as they should on every browser, OS, and device every single time. Learn more about Source at the Ministry of Testing Automation Week at the end of October. Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Testers Island Discs, where today I'm speaking to Louise Gibbs. Louise graduated in computer science from Bangor in 2013, and since then has been testing in industries as far-reaching as fashion and pharmaceuticals. She's a prolific blogger and event attendee who last year stepped up onto the big stage and has been giving lots of talks about getting value out of your test automation. And if you haven't seen one of her talks, you may have seen her illustrations of others. She's a prolific and highly proficient sketchnoter. Welcome to the podcast, Louise. Hi, hello. You've had a busy month with everything Ministry of Testing related. You were just speaking at TestPass Manchester. Oh, yes, yes. It's um, it's definitely one of my favourite conferences I've been to. I think very the, the Test Bash events are very friendly, so I was very excited to be invited to speak at that again. So even if it was online, it didn't make it, it didn't uh, change the experience at all. I hate to use the phrase new normal, but I think we're all beginning to get used to the idea of online events now. It, it looks like it's it may be here to stay for a few months yet. But having spoken also at Test Bash in 2019, how does the the prep and the um, the giving of talks compare in person to online? Is one of them harder than the other? Well, I think um, for um, Test Bash, because um, they wanted everything pre-recorded and I think most people don't like listening to themselves speak. Um, that 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 was definitely a big difference. That if I was all very strange, just watching myself give a talk. Um, so that was def- that was that was different. Uh, so I think also when when you're recording something, you sort of become very conscious of the mistakes you're making, which I imagine you have experience with this podcast. So I've, I've had at least I've had at least five experiences of that since we started recording. So yes. <laughs> It must at least eliminate the sort of the butterflies of having to stand up and, and, and see the whole room of people. I think there are two ways around it. I think there's two different things there. Like um, when you're watching, when you're at the talk and watching people who, who, when you're giving a talk, you can sort of see their reactions. You're sort of like almost doing a performance and you can, you sort of, you know, if you've got the, the laughter when you tell a joke and you can sort of really engage with them better. But at the same time with, um, online talks you have still got the chat feature so you can sort of see what people are commenting and that that that, that can be um just as interesting because i think you sort of they put their emotions into words there so they're always quite that's just as nice so i think you still get that reaction but they're just very very different but it seems weird that it's been only a year or so since I actually met you for the first time at Test Bash Manchester in person in 2019, um, when you were starting off on your conference speaking expedition. Has 2020 and lockdown helped or hindered with that? Because I guess there's more online opportunities. There has been. Um, so, yeah, I, I did quite a few um, meetup talks. So the um, I know that it has made attending meetups a lot easier. So you've been able to mm. practice giving talks a lot easier. Um, again, they're online, so you are, I think you're also meeting in wider audience. But then at some point, also I found actually with everything being online, and because everything was online and it's a lot easier to put things online, there were so many more conferences, so many more events that I did find myself, I was exhausting myself. I was getting, trying to do too much. It felt like there was so much to do and I wanted to do everything. And I think I had to sort of think about trying to step back a bit. So I think um, it's... There's more opportunities, and I think sort of recognising you don't need to take every single opportunity when when you have when giving these talks. So it, it has been very very different. Very different. It, mm. I do I do really miss actually attending meetups in person. Um, one of my goals for this year was to attend meetups, more meetups to meet more people, um, try and learn some different different areas of technology, um, and it's, it went well. Um, you know, January and February, it was going really well. I, my aim was to go to at least one meetup a week and I was doing very well. And then March, they suddenly all started 
being cancelled and then not existing at all. And so that kind of ruined that um, role a little bit. I think that my part maybe thing that was the two, but there were two aims of that. One was to meet new people um, and the other one was to learn new things. And I suppose like I'm still able to get the learning side of it. Meeting people has been a bit harder though. So I think that's, I think, but I think that um, a lot more people are, there are different, I think that um, there are different options for networking though. So a lot more conversations being taking place online, a lot more, more comments on social media as well. So I don't think, I think, I feel like everything's changed, but it's more like things have been replaced. Things that we had before have been replaced with just different ways of doing things. Yeah, I think people have found other ways of, of directing their energy. So yeah, that, that output is still happening. Like you say, it's kind of happening all over the place, which means anyone who like you or like me sort of gets FOMO, fear of missing out. There's a lot of that around. I've been kind of winding down my use of social media for a while and I keep coming back on and finding I missed amazing things. I know that um, there are testers who organize these things that they just call testers hangouts where they're like, I, don't, I think they're like a Google hangout session or something or a Zoom session where people just drop in and chat and those sort of things are great but i never seem to hear about them after they've happened um i think um as time goes on we're going to find more and more ways to, to pull these online resources obviously um ministry of testing if, if you remember you've got access to all the talks from previous test bashes um which is what we're going to talk about um in the next section we're going to talk about your recent test bash talk for those who couldn't make it but before we do that we should talk about one of the reasons you're here which is the idea behind Tessa's island discs you imagine you are marooned on a desert island for reasons of your own making and you've been stranded with five songs that represent either elements of your life or things that are important to you uh louise what's the first song that you picked today so um one thing you probably noticed about my music my favorite music it is usually from movie soundtracks um my favorite movie if you ask me what my favorite movie is um and why the reason will usually be because of the music from it um, and so I think my first song is from How to Train Your Dragon, which is my favourite animated movie. Uh, and again, it is mainly because of the amazing soundtrack it has. Um, so a particular track from that I've chosen, though, is uh, Forbidden Friendship. Um, it's, the, it's the music that's played when um, Hiccup and Toothless the Dragon become friends. And I think it's just a really, really beautiful piece of music. And I just, I just absolutely love listening to it. And again, it's my favourite scene from the movie. And it's mainly because of the music. So, yeah, that's, that's my, my, my first, first song. That was Forbidden Friendship by John Powell from the movie How to Train Your Dragon. Now, Louise, the talk you gave at Test Bash Manchester recently was called Don't Run Before You Can Walk. And I mentioned a list of your uh, hobbies and activities at the beginning, but I missed off the one that this, this relates to. Can you tell us the slightly painful story behind your talk? Yeah, so uh, yeah, while I was at university, um, I think I went through it with my rebel daredevil phase. Um, I took up rock climbing. And absolutely loved it. I think I went to university in North Wales, um, in Bangor, um, which is very close to Snowdonia. Um, so I was going up in the mountains every weekend, walking up Snowdon and other mountains up there. Um, and then I, in my second year, I took up rock climbing. Um, towards the, at the end of my second year, um, just after my exams, so luckily they weren't affected by this, uh, I did have a very horrible um, rock climbing accident. I fell... 80 feet um, down a rock race. Luckily, um, this whole thing, I, I think I look at this whole thing, if you land on your head, you're pretty much buggered. Um, mm. I, I landed on my legs, um, which was probably what saved my life. Uh, I broke my ankle, both my kneecaps, both femurs, um, a couple of ribs, my elbow, and I dislocated my shoulder. So... It, it was it was kind of bad. It was bad. Um, it, it 
took some time to recover from it. Uh, I had to take a year at university. Um, a lot of it, you know, going at several hospital, several weeks in hospital, in, in more operations, and I did spend a very long time, most of that year, in a wheelchair. So, you know, obviously, when you get injured, you you, you don't give up. You you, you, you will get better. Um, most times, you will get better, and it does take a lot. It's not something that ha- happens very quickly, though. It, it's something that takes several years to recover from. So that's kind of how it went. That's what the title was referring to. Don't run before you can walk. You, I didn't go straight into trying to walk, walk and then run and go up the mountains again. It was a very slow process. I started off small steps towards like walking short distances to walking without crutches, short distances, and then gradually building up until I was, you know, eventually doing, doing um, again, I did doing rock climbing again, eventually. So oh, you, did, you did, I was going to ask whether, whether you did, that experience was, was enough for you or you, but you, uh, you overcome sort of mentally the, 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 um, the trouble behind that. Uh, yeah. So I have no memory of the accident. So that didn't really traumatize me that much. Um, so eventually I, I was, um, was rock climbing again. I think after a year out, when I went to university, I went to do some easy indoor stuff. Um, I don't go rock climbing anymore that much. Um, I, I did do it. I never went to the same. I wasn't doing it as much as I was before the accident. But I, I, I did do quite a bit of rock climbing still um, as I was recovering. Probably at times when I probably shouldn't have been climbing. But I think it, it sort of... I think it helped my, my recovery as well, though, getting just getting out there and doing some exercise and, again, just being careful, I think. So I never did anything too drastic when I was rock climbing. Obviously, with any uh, leisure or sporty activity, there's there's always some risk of um, of accidents happening and there being a recovery time. But that, as, as as recovery times go, that sounds like one that had many stages over a number of, of, of months and years. There must have been some some very, very hard times, some very low points in there. How, how did you, you get through sort of your lowest moments then? I think um, it's definitely a lot of support from family that helped. Um, and I think for me, it was mostly like just doing stuff uh, I was unable to work um, and able to get a job because I kind of I was on a, very, a lot of very strong I was on a lot of very strong medication which was making me fall asleep randomly. So I, th- I think the real one was I started just working on projects and stuff. Um, I think particularly I started doing a lot more um, sewing and um, embroidery. That's like so working on just working on things. I wasn't at university, so I wasn't studying, and I think at one point I was getting very bored and mm-hmm. feeling a bit like a layabout a bit which I didn't like so I think one, one big activity I did do um was my um during that year my my sister was pregnant so I made a quilt for my my niece so I think just doing projects and just doing things I think that's kind of what kept me going really and then eventually I went back to university and I had stuff to do uh, you know suddenly there's less, less time to do stuff so I think really just keep myself busy. That was it. Fantastic. And you're back to almost full health now, or as as are you, are you ever back to a hundred percent again from something like that? Um, so yeah, I, I think um, it, there are obviously long term issues from some of the injuries. I have a perm- permanently fused ankle, so the, the ankle doesn't move at all, which does. Um, I mean, I, I've, tr- I've trouble controlling a clutch on the when driving, so I always drive automatics. But that I think that's the only real significant one. And, and buying shoes is quite difficult. Like I can't, I struggle to keep shoes. I, I can't wear slip-on shoes because they won't stay on my feet otherwise. So I have to wear ones with good. Like I can't, I've always got to wear lace-ups now. So things like things like that yeah. and heels. Obviously, can't. It's, I think yeah. it's a very small thing, superficial things like that. So not nothing too yeah. stick. Um, it's a bit. I, mean, I do go out. Run. I don't do any rock climbing anymore, but I do go out running. So I think um, it does it does impact my ability to run, my speed and ability to run properly. But generally, it's very very minor minor changes. 
Yeah, it's, a, it's an unexpected list of, of side effects, but I guess considering what happened, you must consider yourself very lucky with that. We're going to go on and talk about how that relates to testing, the don't run before you can walk part of it, in the next section, after we talk about the second song that you picked today. Oh, okay, yes. So, um, second song, um, I was a big Game of Thrones fan. I, I've never read the books, though. Um, I never watched TV series. Um, I, my favourite scene from the entire Game of Thrones series, um, Light of the Seven, um, it's a scene where the um, Sept gets destroyed. And I, what I love about this particular track is that well, Game of Thrones was very well known for having very sudden, unexpected deaths, deaths that just come out of nowhere. What I think makes this scene quite noticeable is that we sort of knew it was going to happen. So instead of having this big, sudden death that comes out of nowhere, they decided to really build up slowly towards it. And so this piece of music is just so slow and very calming and just builds up slowly and slowly. It sort of almost lulls you into this false sense of security and what I love about it is you sort of know that it's a false sense of security. So it's very subtle and it builds up and builds up and, until you finally, the, the track just suddenly ends. And if you listen to that piece of music without actually knowing the scene, you sort of know that something big happens at the end of it. Um, and again, I think it's my, fav- my favourite scene from the entire series I love the music from it. I love this music from the whole series as well, actually, but this particular piece is definitely my favourite. It's Light of the Seven by, I'm never sure how to pronounce his name, actually, uh, Roman Jawadi, I think it's, it is. Um, so that, that's, uh, that's my second track, Light of the Seven. From Game of Thrones Season 6, that was Light of the Seven by Ramin Javadi. Now, we were talking about your talk at Test Bash, Don't Run Before You Can Walk. Uh, We've heard the horrific story about uh, your rock climbing accident and your path to recovery from there. Now, you were given this talk in the context of test automation. So what what are the uh, the mistakes people make when they try to to run effectively into test automation? Uh, Yeah, so um, I think the main aim of my talk was to give people the confidence to just give it a go, just go for it. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges with test automation is some, some people, it can be this really scary, daunting thing, which it can always, some people are almost like to, they think they can't do it. Same time. Um, I think if you don't, and if you don't, if you don't go into it correctly, it can go very wrong and that can destroy your confidence and it can destroy any opportunity you might have. So I think it does come back to my one of my first experiences with test automation. I, I was working for a small company. Um, I was the only member of the testing team with automate with uh, with um, programming experience. So I was very confident with programming, but I hadn't got any experience with test automation. Um, I only had about a year's testing experience. Um, this was my first job out of university. And I think I went straight into that. I thought, yeah, I could totally do this. I can do this. Um, and I think it's, it's, I think it's just really just go for it. I think it's nothing wrong with just going for it, but sometimes you've got to maybe step back and think, how is the best way to just go in there? Don't jump straight first. But first think about what you're going to do and how to do it. And yeah, I did make quite a few mistakes. Um, Luckily, I was just trying things out anyway, and I was able to. I was still, I still had that opportunity to just step back and start again, and just think, what did I do wrong? What should I change? And just jump in again, and but this time, thinking a bit more clearly, more carefully about how I should approach it. Um, and so I think I kind of felt like some parallels with my recovery from my rock climbing injuries um in that 
it it wasn't again it wasn't something that happened overnight you don't suddenly you're not going to be able to suddenly develop automated tests you do need to go into it slowly and i think this kind of effect this kind of relates to anything really any when you're learning any new skill anything you want to try out you do need to sort of think very carefully about how you approach it and do it in the right way otherwise it can go very very badly and and that can just really really just destroy your confidence so that's kind of what it is like rather than going straight into test automation thinking carefully how best to go about it making sure you have the right skills developing those skills and then and then just sort of building it up slowly and i i think um, just maybe just getting it first getting it very small steps first getting writing a test that works maybe even just debugging some failing tests or just looking at an existing test that someone's written for you and trying to work out exactly what it's done, break it down. So just just really, I think, really be, think carefully about how you do things, but rather than going jumping straight straight in head first. Yeah, automation is, is such a buzzword these days in that people are always looking to add more automation as kind of automate all the things. Um, the number of job job adverts that I've seen where people have said, we're moving towards full automation, which is, is a thing that is not attainable. You can't replace, replace all testing activities with automation, but there is obviously uh, a drive to get as much automation as possible. But like you say, you need to start with um, understanding the problem you're trying to solve um, and then breaking that down into its component pieces. And actually, they can seem a lot less scary. There's a project I'm working on right now where... Um, one of the testers I'm working with has been a bit um, sort of overwhelmed by what he sees that we need to automate. And we sat down and looked at the problem. And actually, all we need to do is we have two API endpoints. There's an old one we're replacing and a new one that we're replacing it with. And we want to compare the output of two of those. So actually, all that is, is it's two API calls. Uh, grabbing the response and then finding uh, a third party tool of some kind to diff those responses. And actually, he's like, oh, okay. Now you put it that way, <laughs> that actually seems really easy. And um, like you say, you can. Um, one of the, if I, if I can try and try and draw a rock climbing parallel, I guess you wouldn't start by climbing Everest as your first ever rock climbing thing. So what you should do is you should break it down and start with a much smaller piece, and uh, then you are safe to fail because if you fail from you know two foot off the ground, it, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, I never would have done Everest though. <laughs> 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 so I guess if you're if you're um, introduced to automation and you're uh, the solitary tester on a team, of course you can find some support from uh, within within your team. I would guess, but when you hit upon a problem in automation, and particularly if it's an area you've never worked in before, where else would you go to to try and solve those problems? If it, if it's you, know, you hit a brick wall, I think you want to try and make automation work with your team. Um, Use it in a way that can that can enhance the testing you already have in place. So the testers will have very good knowledge of the system and what what um, the testing current testing strategy is, and they can probably give you some good ideas on how best to you to utilize test automation so that it can work and actually bring the best value to the team. Um, always also worth worth speaking to developers if. We're not sure how to do something. The developers, they are experts. They are expert programmers. They can probably help you and give you some ideas. Um, I when when I work on my automation, test automation code now, um, I always include the entire my the testers and the developers in my code reviews. Um, mm. the te- even the testers who don't understand code as well, they they can still give you insights. It's worth it's nice to give them that opportunity to understand what is already in place. So I think, yeah, definitely speaking to both the testers and the developers are the great people to speak to for help. You also want to maybe speak to maybe business analysts um, asking what do they, what, what try and understand what the priorities are. What is the most important part of the system? What would, what could destroy the business if, it didn't work because that and that is probably what you want to focus your tests on so you know as soon as possible if that that component isn't working so i think speaking to everybody not just testers i think can really help you understand how best to use test automation so it brings the best value to your team to the project and to the business and that i think it's just again if you ever 
And the other thing is also, if you ever do hit a brick wall, the real thing you want to do is just to speak to someone, ask someone for help, anyone for help. I mean, regardless of experience, I think everyone may have ideas that can inspire inspire you to um, try something different out. Try something different out. That's some really useful tips that are applicable in a load of different domains, regardless of what you're working on. Yeah, but that, development is always a, a people problem and at times a communication problem. I think that that's some really good advice to actually get to the bottom of what the problem is that you're trying to solve. In the next section, we're going to go into some specifics about the tooling that you choose for your automation. We're going to take a trip back to TestPash 2019. But before we do that, we're at the halfway point. What was the third song you chose today, Louise? So this is the only song I've chosen, which is not from a movie soundtrack. Um, it is a classical piece, though, and definitely my favourite. It, it sort of always brings up memories. I, I played the cello while I was at school, and so I do love huge orchestral pieces. Um, so sort of, especially if it's something I might have played as part, of, well, in the school orchestra. Um, so this one is definitely one of my favourites, though. It's in the Hall of the Mountain King, um, composed by Edvard Grieg. Um, it's a very, I think it's a very exciting piece. Again, sort of got that lovely sense of danger because it's like gradually building up in speed. And it's an amazing piece. I, I do love how Olsen Towers theme park used it as their, um, their theme music because it, 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 it kind of really sums up um, this whole, it almost gives you the idea of you're going like big adventure, going to Olsen Towers. So this is, that's why I've always loved this piece of music and like, it could be in the movie soundtrack, it could be. was In the Hall of the Mountain King by Edvard Grieg. The version you heard there was by the Oslo Philharmonic Orchestra. Now we take a jump back to Test Bash Manchester 2019. You were giving a talk there, Louise, called The Joy of Record and Playback in Test Automation. Now, record and playback tools do often get a bad rap. Are you here to make the case for their defence? Oh, yeah. I think, I think record and playback is a brilliant tool and there should be no shame in using it. Um, if I always say, like, if there is a tool that can make your job easier, why would you not use it? I, I, I think, um, and ironically, I think because of the bad rep it gets, um, it is how this talk came about, how this idea for this talk came about. I think, I think it was because someone had put a post on LinkedIn about how terrible it is as a, as a tool, and not just that, they said that I think anyone who uses it is a terrible programmer, which I thought was a very almost elitist and snobby, I think, um, analysis of it. And um, it, 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 that comment, it made me angry, and I took that anger and I wrote a blog post, uh, <laughs> which then turned into about three blog posts. It turns out I had a lot to write about, how brilliant. <laughs> um, and then I thought, okay, I seem to have a lot to say about this. This could probably make a talk. Um, so that, that's kind of how the whole talk came about. But I think people who say it, who don't like it, they it's probably because they've had either they've either tried it themselves or they've seen other people use it in the wrong way. Again, I think with any tool, as long as it's used in the right, it's got to be with any tool, it's got to be used in the right way for it to be useful and valuable and effective. A bit like test automation itself, if it's not used in the right way it is just going to be a waste of time and money. Um, and the real thing about record and playback is that you you, you shouldn't rely on the code that's developed. Um, so you might want to hit record, do the actions that will create that code, and then you and then hit stop. And then you've got that instant code that will run. I think people who are very new to programming will struggle to create that code from scratch. So you've now got a way for new programmers, new 
new developers to have that instant code. And that's it's a great way of introducing new programmers to test automation. If especially if they're not experienced, they don't have that confidence. So they have this code that is going to work. It's not going to work well, but it will work. And they've now what they can then do is make their own changes to it, perfect it. Um, I think when you're writing automated tests, you want to start with similar back to my um my talk on don't run before you can walk talk. You want to start with very small steps. You want to first get something that works. Um, people always talk about how flaky um, web um, UI automated tests are. Um, it doesn't matter if it's flaky when you first create it. Just it, make it so it works most of the time. And then you want to sort of slowly make those changes. You've got something that works, you can make very small changes. If it doesn't work, you can just, you know, just undo those changes. And so I think um, it's the real thing about it is you want to make sure, like any tool, you want to use it right. And... As you make those changes, you suddenly then start to perfect it slowly and, and slowly improve it. Um, in fact, I think one time when someone was talking to me after this talk, um, we sort of said, you know what, we really shouldn't be calling it record and playback. We should be calling it record and refactor. Yeah. So I think that's the real thing about it. And I think that's where it, the reason it gets a bad rep is when people don't refactor it. I was going to say, I think a lot of these tools vendors don't help themselves because their tools, they demo very well and they only demo that first half. They demo the, here you go, install, run, click, and boom, now you've got a test. It's like, yes, that's less than 50% of what you need to do with this. Like you say, it's a very good tool for generating code that you need, then needs to be treated the same as any automation code. So if you know if your test clicks 10 buttons, you probably actually want to refactor that away and have a, a single click function so that when code changes as it does, you don't have to go back and redo all your all your automation um, or record and playback. It's um, it's it's a basis, a very very quick way of very easily getting code that you can maintain if you make it maintainable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, still my my biggest ever win really in in, in test automation has come from a record and playback tool. I remember I was working for a company where it was a desktop software um, product that um, it had an installer, but there was no automated install process. So we had a, a an environment that we could start up and we then have to go and manually install the build every day. It was like, well, actually, we've got a tool here that can uh, run the executable, click the button that says next five times, <laughs> verify that it's finished, and then it's installed. So uh, we can then throw that record playback script on there. And now every morning we've got a build that's ready for us to test. Um, and, you know, it's the sort of thing that if you'd gone to a developer, then, yeah, they could probably have written an automated installer and, Maybe that would have taken them six months, but this took me five minutes, and it's like, well, we don't have a problem anymore. I think, yeah, absolutely. Like, because you've got like very quick code that's generated, and I think, I think one thing, big thing about record playback though is that it is optional. Um, you don't have to use it. Uh, some people do prefer just writing the code up from scratch, and that that is perfectly fine. Um, but even if you're like, even experienced programmers may think, you know what. I can't bother to write this code out. Let's just just, just generate it quickly, and I'll just make the changes. And I think it's it's the thing. It's it's a, it may sound lazy, but I think that's just making best use using your time in the best way. Yeah, it's another tool in your toolkit. And there there are times when I'm trying to do things like set up like an element locator where. There are various ways you could do it, but sometimes the easiest way I can find is is to open a tool that I have. That one of the things it does is tell you what the name of the element is or or the best route to it. And um, yeah, you you pick and choose what you have to, what you want to use. No matter what the vendors tell you, you don't have to buy into just their solution. You you know you can use it as part of what you're doing. But um, yeah, as with everything, sort of. Um, I always find it interesting when you mentioned um, locators because I think sometimes um I've seen some record and playback um, features that allow you to just track the locators. Um, and I, I thought, was, which one was it I was using? I, I think it was Ranarex, actually, and I was using. And I, I, I was like, I, I was kind of using the recording playback to more generate the, create the locators. And I then noticed that there was a track button. I thought, oh, what does that do? And I realized it just created the locator for you. So <laughs> it's sort of like a very similar way as the recording playback works. It just automatically generates that locator. I think the, the locators can usually when things go wrong with record and playback, it's usually because the locator hasn't been generated properly. So again, it's like a refactor thing. You just need to just sort of change the code for behind the locator that it uses. So. 
Yep. As, as with anything in testing, don't use it blindly. Understand what you're using, and it can be a valuable tool. Absolutely. We are hammering through this podcast now. I don't know where the time's going, but um, we're up to song. We're up to song number four now. Oh, excellent. Uh, so yes, um, song number four. It's from um, from Gladiator. Um, it's now we are free, and it was composed by Hans Zimmer and Lisa Gerrard. Which I'm ashamed that um, it's the only song that has a female composer on. Um, it's um, I think it was, was it last year's Oscars. They they announced the um, they actually had a female composer play the music for announcing the the best film score category because um, it's it's probably one one of the, a lot of the a lot of, a lot of the time Oscar nominations um, with the exception of the best actress category they they tend to be very lot lot more men seems to be in, in nominations um, so I think I would it's one thing I would like to see in movies like more more female composers definitely. Um, but no, this one I absolutely love. Um, now we're free. It's a beautiful piece of music. Um, it's one thing I think about um, Hans Zimmer. A lot of his music, some of his best music, seems to be at the end of the films, and I think it makes it it provides quite an, a memorable ending to the film. Um, and I think this one definitely Gladiator. Um, it's sort of like gets that lovely feeling. It's a it's like a happy ending but also you're quite sad because you know the main characters died spoiler alert if anyone's not seen it um it, it sort of gets that look it's so many such a big mix of emotions i get from that ending scene um and again i think it, definitely a brilliant movie but again it, like with a lot of um, movies where he's handsome has done the done the score it's usually the ending that's been the most memorable i'd say that is, that is my, my fourth song. Now we are free from Gladiator. From the soundtrack to the film Gladiator, that was Hans Zimmer and Lisa Gerrard with Now We Are Free. Now, Louise, I couldn't possibly get you on this podcast without talking to you about one of the most amazing things that I see you do, which is sketch noting. For those listeners who aren't familiar with the concept, can you explain what a sketch note is in the concept of a conference talk? For me, sketch noting is just getting all the contents of the talk, for me, what I think is important onto a single sheet of paper. It makes it's more visual you've got you can see it you can I can sort of remember the entire talk just from one single piece of paper mm. um for me I think I, I love doing sketch noting because it, it for me it's about it helps me analyze my notes from the talk um I know there are a lot of brilliant sketch noters about who they create their sketch notes live during the talk I I really can't do that I've tried it doesn't work so <laughs> I, I always write rough notes read scribbles out and then I take out the most important points that I points I think are most important and then just present them in a like, more prettier way um I can like I can put that on a I can just stick it on the wall and then my colleagues can look at it and go okay yeah I got that talk um I also like sharing them because I started sketch noting because I I found it really useful looking at other people's sketch notes that's why I started doing it mm. you sort of seeing it's interesting seeing what other people think is important from a talk, what their interpretation of the talk is. And also so much information is coming into going into your mind that you, sometimes you miss things out. So I'm able to like saying, ah, missed out that point. I can just add a bit, add the notes on into my notebook. So I started doing sharing my sketch notes because I, I, I was really appreciative when other people shared theirs and I sort of wanted to encourage other people to share theirs as well. So more, I think more when you've got like five or six sketch notes from the same talk, suddenly you've got like these different interpretations, different ideas. I think also as a speaker, it's interesting seeing sketch notes of your own talk because it's nice to see what other people think are important from your talk. I don't believe that 
I've always, I don't believe that the speaker, the speaker's own interpretation of their own talk. I don't believe that is going to always, that's the only interpretation. It's not always the only correct one as well. I think everyone, you can get lots of different ideas from these talks. So it's just, I think in a way a sketch note is maybe your own interpretation of message from the talk as well. That's what I would see. Um, I think the real benefit, some people just struggle with um, note taking. So just being able to see someone else's notes I think can help them just add to their own notes as well. Do you know, that's a massive light bulb moment for me. I'm someone who has always struggled, liked the idea of sketchnoting, but struggled with it. I've never thought of the fact that I could sketchnote after the talk has finished. I could do my notes and then do it separately. I've always been sitting there frantically trying to do it during a talk. And I think that's probably why mine have, have suffered. The other thing is I can't draw for toffee. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, not artistically inclined. Is there any way to get around that? Because the, um, these sort of things, not just by you, yourself, but by other people's, they look beautiful. Um, do you have any sort of tips on you know how you go about structuring a sketch note in a way that makes it stand out? So I think um, the real thing is um, if you don't if you if you think you can't draw, don't draw. Um, <laughs> just focus on getting the text onto the page, drawing boxes around them so you can separate out each of the different ideas, and then maybe just decorating the box in a different way. That's where you add your color in. So you draw, write out your no, write out some ideas in black pen, then draw a box around it in pink pen instead. Just add different colours into it, um, and also experiment as well. So if something doesn't work, that's fine. Just share it anyway. I think they are sketch notes. They are meant to be brief. They're meant to be rough. They're not meant to be perfect. So don't try to make them perfect. Um, experiment with them um, and. I think maybe rather than drawing, just focus on the colour, adding colour on instead. I think that's kind of how I sort of started out. Sometimes it's really hard to think of a good picture that might accompany the point. So if you can't think of a good picture, then just don't don't add it in. Um, so I think that's the thing. Maybe focus more on the boxes around the text and adding colour instead. And you can also, one thing you can also do is just practice sketch noting as well. So doing a mood board, maybe thinking of a particular testing area and then thinking of then doing think of different doodles different drawings that could accompany that exploratory testing you could have a picture of a map or you could have a picture of um a compass someone trying to or an explorer or someone like that i think i once used an example of an iceberg um for explaining the difference between test or scripted testing and exploratory testing you've got the part of the iceberg you can see that's the scripted testing the stuff we know and you want to confirm that that stuff that you still know that, that your understanding of what you know is still true. And then you've got the stuff you can't see, the part of the iceberg you can't see. And that's where you do exploratory testing. You're trying to discover more information. So sort of just thinking of a mood board that just get to generate ideas of what you could do, what you could draw during in your sketch notes to explain an idea. Um, so yeah, I think that yeah. So just summarise, just again, focus on colours rather than drawings. And if you do want to start maybe incorporating drawings as you become more confident, maybe start creating some mood boards for ideas what you could include in your pictures. I honestly think I'm going to go back and sketch note this podcast as practice because there have been so many good pieces of advice there about how to get this going. Uh, like you say, it's. Funny enough, as with automation itself, yeah, start small, um, go slowly um, in your own time and then build up. My aim is we've got Test Bash New Zealand coming up in the middle of November and I'm going to aim to try and sketch note one or two of those talks to an adequate degree that I feel confident enough to publish them online. So we'll see how that goes. I think that's a good idea. One other thing, um, and I think I've I've sort of, my sketch notes have sort of um, become a lot more prevalent since lockdown started because when you're when you're doing an online when you it's all online you have all that space you have your drawing tools at home so you can sort of create your sketch notes during the talk but I think doing it during a live conference when you're actually there is a lot harder um, which is another reason why you should probably avoid sketch noting live if you're not having enough practice but I think also again don't try and sketch note every single talk um I think particularly test batch Manchester which has just been 
Um, I have missed out a couple of talks. I do intend to watch them later and add them in, but I think sometimes I was starting to realise I wasn't enjoying the day. I wanted to take time to do some networking and enjoy the day as well. So I think don't try and put pressure on yourself to sketch note every single talk because I think I've made that mistake and it can really affect your experience of the conference. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us full circle, talking about online conferences, which is where we've all ended up in 2020. Let's hope that 2021 has some more in-person events uh, for us so we can all get together and meet and and have in-person experiences. But before we wrap up, there is the small matter of your final song choice today. Ah, uh, this is... Um, so I think any anyone who loves movie soundtracks will be very familiar with John Williams. Um, he is... He's, 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 he's composed the probably most iconic film scores ever uh you very nearly had the entire list of just music by john williams um <laughs> but i think um you got you got like you, you, you've got jurassic park you've got the jaws theme you've got did you do harry potter i think you did harry potter yeah they're very mem- they're, they're very memorable um but i think it's best best film ever star wars and um, especially the main title it it's that and that is that's definitely you can't, I couldn't have my list without the main Star Wars theme on it. So that, that, is, that is my fifth and final song. From the soundtrack to Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, that's John Williams with the Star Wars main title performed there by the London Symphony Orchestra. Finally picked on this podcast. I can't believe it's taken us 40 episodes to get a full-on Star Wars reference. Thank you very much for picking that one, Louise. The other thing you get to choose to bring with you to the island is one book to keep you company. What book have you decided to bring along? Yeah, so uh, I've, um, I have written a few blog posts which reference sewing um it's my other hobby which um i do still do and like rock climbing um and it's um so it's the embroidery stitch bible by betty barnden it's just a little it's just a book with different embroideries embroidery stitches and um, one thing i like doing sometimes is just pick opening it randomly picking a, a stitch and then just getting a, a blank canvas and just just experimenting with it and I do, I do think it's one of the most important skills any tester can have is creativity. And I think you really should be, I think when you think about your hobbies, try and have something that can really help with your creativity and boost your creativity. So this is definitely my, my favorite book. I, I could not be without it. Thank you for that choice. That joins a very small selection of creative slash practical books that people have picked. I'm a bit concerned that on this desert island, I'm not sure what you're going to embroider, whether you can weave. <laughs> weaving may have been more appropriate, but um, it's good to have that in the collection. That book will be added to the selection that's available on Goodreads. It's a collection of all the books that previous guests have selected. That is linked in the show notes. You'll also find a link in the show notes to the Spotify playlist, which has all the songs that everyone has selected. And there are other links in there, such as if you'd like to submit to be on the podcast and pick your own songs, and there's a form that you can choose on there. That brings us to the end of our time on the island, Louise. Thank you so much for coming along. This is where I'd normally ask what people have got coming up. I guess there's still a lot of question marks involved in that, but have you got any irons in the fire? Uh, yeah, so um, the only thing I've got coming up now is the 99-minute workshop. Um, if anyone's been taking part in 99-minute workshops that the Ministry of Testing have been doing, they are brilliant. Uh, great way of just trying, trying out new skills, also having a bit of fun at the same time. And I am doing a 99-minute workshop on visual facilitation and sketch noting. So if you want to improve your sketch note skills, then you should try try out my workshop. Mostly going to be covering um, just the process I might follow for creating a sketch note, but also practicing notes taking skills. I think some of you will really struggle with noting taking notes during a conference talk. So that is just that's one thing we'll also be practicing during the talk, during the workshop rather. And the next one is going to be on the fourth of November at uh, oh, it's um, 
I just realised the time zone is different. I think this is the New York time zone, I believe. Um, I don't know what time it will be in New York, but it's going to be at 6 p.m. in the UK. Um, I would guess, I'm going to say either 12 or 1, because we're about to enter this weird time of the year where America changes their clocks before we do by a week or so. So um, um, the Ministry of Testing website does convert it to your local time zone if you if you go in there logged in, um, so you can find out on there. That definitely falls into the pit of things that we talked about earlier, where there's so much going on that I'd missed. I definitely want to go to that, but that's the first I've heard of it. So I am I will be trying to make my way there on uh, November the 4th. Looking forward to, to seeing you there. If people miss you on there or they want to get in touch with you through some other means, what's the best way for people to get hold of you? Oh, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm, I think I, I use both both uh, forms of social media. Um, I also have my blog, um, which I was very creative when I, I, I mentioned the importance of creativity. I was not creative when I created, came up with this. Um, LouiseGibbsTest.wordpress.com. Um, <laughs> my, my Twitter handle is equally creative, uh, Louise underscore J underscore Gibbs. <laughs> Um, quite easy to find, I think. Um, so, yeah, always always nice to hear from people. Um, so, yeah, that's where you can contact me. Excellent. We'll put all those links in the show notes as well. Um, if people would like to get in touch with the podcast, um, our account is at Testers Island. You can find me on there occasionally when I remember to log into Twitter. Um, but thank you very much for coming along today, Louise. It's been a pleasure. As, like I say, it's only been a year since we first met at Test Bash Manchester last year. It seems a lot has happened in the world since then. So um, it's been nice to catch up with you. I still can't believe that it was only a year ago. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. been Who, but yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I've been, I, I was, been, always loved this podcast. We wanted to go on for so long, so I'm so pleased. <laughs> Well, we're delighted to have you and it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you, dear audience, and we'll be back with you next month, which is November. Where's the year going? We'll soon be out of 2020. Thank goodness. Um, we'll catch you all next month, but thank you very much uh, once more, Louise. Thank you. Thank you. I will see you all again soon. Bye. Testers Island Discs is brought to you by Ministry of Testing, written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Green Day. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island.